0: Live from the home office of Ag Solutions Network, it's the Ag Emerge Podcast. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies.
1: Get ready to improve your soils, your crops,
0: your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottas. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Well, hello there. We're excited for you to join us today for our conversation with Bob Recker of Cedar Falls Innovation, where he's focused on row configuration oriented around sunlight harvest. Bob's research is working on harnessing that sunlight to create the opportunity for improving soil health, utilizing cover crops and companion crops. Bob stresses that he is looking at advanced farming practices, generating ideas that are worthy of more investigation and practical research. Producers are taking the work that Bob has done and using it as baby steps to identify what works in their individual operations. Join us as we discuss those advanced farming practice ideas and what it might look like for your operation. Thank you for joining us today on the Aggie Merge podcast. We are excited to hear and have this conversation um, about some pretty exciting things that you're testing in the field. So um, what we love to do is kind of find out right away uh, what, uh, what your story is and what has brought you to this point of um, where you're at with the research that you're doing and the work that you're doing with different different farmers. So tell us about that.
2: Sure, Kim. Thanks. And thanks for having me. Uh, happy to have the conversation. Uh, I um, my, my story started many, many years ago on a farm in Northeast Iowa, uh, continued through uh, Iowa State University, landed at John Deere, uh, uh, made a really nice nest there for uh, 41 years and retired uh, uh, in 2008. So I've been uh, out of that particular nest for uh, about 11 years now. And I uh, look back with uh, with good feelings about what I did there, but I, I'm having a blast. Uh, and and part of it is uh, I grew up on a farm where my dad was kind of an inventor type. He had a number of patents. And my perception was he farmed to support his inventing habit. And I decided it was better to, uh, to ha- ha- do what genetically it looked like I was inclined to do. And that's Engineering, which is not invention, but it's related, I guess. Uh, And now I find myself uh, uh, leveraging my engineering, trying to play farmer. And I spent the first few years after I retired with uh, really great people, associates that had land here in in Waterloo, Iowa, that let me do plots on their land. Uh, And sometimes it was a nice little corner, and sometimes it was junk ground. And I quickly learned, uh, it was a humbling experience. I quickly learned how much domain knowledge that these growers are walking around with. And I, I uh, really was focused on sunlight and sunlight harvest. And, and so that took my attention and, and everything I could muster. But I failed miserably at nutrition. I failed uh, at, at seed selection. Uh, my weed management wasn't very good. And uh, I quickly uh, became aware that uh, I wasn't going to be credible talking to growers or suggesting to them what they do if I couldn't do what they did as good as what they did it. Uh, and and but in the process, uh, I developed some relationships. Uh, a young man named Lauren Steinlage up in Western West Union, Iowa, created a private Facebook group, and that really gave me a good. Uh, indoctrination into the world of open-minded growers that were uh, willing to look at things, willing to help me along, kind of nurture me. And, and it was a very open, very sharing, uh, organization. It kind of continues to be, and it's not a was, it is, uh, and I value those folks, uh, greatly. I, I consider them lifelong friends. Um, but through that process, uh, a few growers here more more close to home uh, started letting me come onto their land. And so a, a key part of what I do is I commit to the grower that and, and I'm I'm sharing this money. I don't wanna I don't wanna belabor the point too much, but it's it's an integral part of how I got to where I am in terms of doing experiments that I hope are farm scale. Or close to that, and farmer credible. So, so what happens? My commitment to the grower is I will take more than one minute of his planting season out of his schedule, or one minute out of his harvest schedule. So he's out there planting, and we we have how big my plot's going to be. And usually it's it's a couple hundred rows, uh, and in a half mile field, that's like twenty acres. So okay, so he's essentially. Uh, clearing the path, he's he's planting, picks up his planter, scooches over uh, a few hundred rows and keeps planting. So that's, that's the sum and total of what he has to do for his research plot that year. And then I roll in with my little tractor and my little equipment and do my thing, which is mostly around uh, row configuration oriented towards sunlight harvest and all of that. That has been and continues to what I try to do and, and, and the, we'll talk more later about, about why sunlight harvest matters, at least to me. But the good news of that is the grower owns the land, he owns the fertility, he's done the strip till or it's no till. And, and I, I drop in and, and the first thing I do is plant a few rows exactly the same as he did. Usually it's the same day, always it's the same day I should say, uh, always the same variety and at the same population for starters because then when I come in in the fall, he's harvesting and he he jumps over my little plot and keeps going and he leaves a few rows of his own. So my first test each year is, did I do as good a job as the grower in planting corn? It took me about 10 years to get to where I could answer that honestly, yes. Uh, In the early days, it was definitely not that way and And so it's a lot of sleepless night and, and uncounted thousands of dollars in planter upgrades to get to that point. But, uh, and that was a, that also was a humbling experience and and it's good. And so I'll do a few rows of my own and then of, of what I call baseline plots. And then I start to do my own experiments. Um, And, and Monty, I, I, I don't want to belabor the, the point with your listeners, but an important, an important message is I don't do university-scale, statistically robust replicated trials because it takes up too much ground. I consider myself to be looking at advanced practices, not new, soon to be adopted, and go out and, and change over your whole farm. What I'm really doing is generating ideas that are worthy of more merit. And, and I've generated a lot of ideas over the last 13 years, almost all of which are bad ideas. The one that seems to be having some attraction is the idea of wide rows, 60-inch rows, and, and what they enable. Uh, and it isn't 60-inch rows just, just to be doing 60-inch rows. It's, it's the fact that they enable a whole bunch of other choices for the grower and all of that. And, and then the question becomes, at what cost? So my goal, I consider myself having been successful when I've got folks out working with, with that practice, uh, figuring out how, how it fits with their equipment, with their processes, and, and whether it makes sense for them individually from a, from a yield benefit, which usually is not the case, or there's other agronomic benefits that, that, that accrue to, to doing this sort of thing. But the point is, I can't generate enough data with different varieties. And, and one of my first uh, I guess jolts of humility was fertility management. Uh, another was the importance of variety selection. And a more recent and, and one of the things that caused me just to give up on doing my plots completely was doing my own plots on, on land that I had access to was the whole cover crop thing because there is an infinite combination of unknowns out there in what species, what mixes, what practices and all of that. When we talk about growing corn in the Midwest USA, it's kind of a done deal. You know, if people know kind of what to do. And if you do what everybody does, you're going to get, you know, county average yields and, and the Lord has blessed us with great, great soil. And, and to the extent that we, continue to take care of it, maintain of it, we will get good yields. I'm wanting to go beyond that. I finished my career in DEER in the advanced engineering group. I, I It took me, again, a few years to figure out that's really what I was doing on the ag side. I, I was not going to be able to do enough uh, experiments and data collections on a specific topic that a grower can say, okay, yep, I'm ready to do that. You know, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go do my thousand acres this way. So I urge people to experiment, uh, in my presentations, I urge individual growers to experiment. And even if they aren't the, the, the wonder of social media these days is there's folks out there doing 60 inch row experiments. Uh, I get little tweets that come in from phone numbers I don't recognize and, 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 uh, names I don't recognize, and locations that I was not aware that people were doing things, and that delights me. And sometimes they talk about success, and sometimes they talk about failure, and good for them when they talk about both, because there's usually more learning in the failure than there is in the success. So so to that extent, uh, I'm feeling pretty, pretty good right now because I've got people taking what I have done and considering it as a baby step and then and then making their own decision on whether it's for them. Uh, on a large-scale adoption, I would be really disappointed if I heard that there were people out there just converting their whole operation to 60-inch rows without eyes wide open on what they were doing with the space and knowing that it made sense for them economically on the cash crop and then even more important, on both the short and the long-term, what what the opportunities are and what the benefits are for soil health and all of that. Uh, a guy named Jack Boyer in Rhinebeck is doing really great work on, on trying to understand the soil health thing. Monty, I know that's an important part of what you guys are doing. and And I understand, humbly, again, that it's a subset of the farming community that lays awake at night worrying about soil health. More of them are laying awake at night worrying about rainfall markets and everything else that's going on that fills the airwaves these days. But long term, I think think you and what you're doing is going to make a difference in terms of the long term viability of our land and our crops and the population of the world.
1: Well, Bob, thank you. Uh, we don't need to ask any questions. You covered everything great. We're just going to go ahead and end the podcast right now. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. No, thanks, Bob. I, I hey, really works. <laughs> It works for you. <laughs> I got plots to check. <laughs> well, no, I thank you for the great background and, and how you got started in this and, and where you're going. And, and, you know, on your last comment that you just made there, farmers stay awake at night worrying about markets, worrying about rain, but not necessarily worrying about soil health. When you think about those three examples that you said right there, can a farmer control the markets? Can a nope. farmer control the rain? Nope. But can That's a farmer control his soil health? Yes, he can. He can make positive yes. changes about that. So, you know, there are things that we can do. Let's worry about the things we can do something with and, and let somebody else worry about those those other things. But. Um, you mentioned about being a part of the advanced uh, research team there with with Deer, and you and I have had uh, we first bumped into each other at Lawrence uh, Plot Field Day, and and uh, it was in- interesting enough. We we set up a time to get together, and I came up to your home office there, and we we spent some time talking about hybrid selection and and nutrition and how that would change in 60 inch rows. And you're like, okay, that's great, Monty. Uh, I don't care about all of that extra little nuance. You just go ahead and do that. Let me know what happens. I think it's kind of how you <laughs> gave me hard time and um so we did some of that last year with you, and that was fun we We did learn a lot with our sixty inch trials. We had uh, three different hybrids and and we did some things to vary the nutrition just to see what would happen when you double up nutrient in row what what happens on sixty inch rows so there were some fun things we'll, we'll talk about in a bit. But just to back up a little bit, when you're talking about trying new ideas on a farm, and you shared this story with me, and it's a part of your, of your regular story now, is think about investing in R&D like a Fortune 500 company, such as Deering Company does, uh, percent of the revenues, or k- translate that into percent of acres. And uh, for regular research and for advanced research, walk us through that example that you used there.
2: Sure. And, and, and this, uh, this again is kind of a late development in my thinking, but, uh, uh, I, I was in my combine, uh, uh, a couple of years ago, you know, spending endless hours harvesting this half mile rows one, one, uh, row at a time. So you get lots of think time and it was like, why isn't anybody doing what I do? You know, what, why, why are they not lining up behind me? I thought this was going to be, be fun and it's just frustrating. And then I finally, it's kind of like, oh no, Bob! What you are doing, you have you have slipped into the mode that you were in that it, it took dear 35 years to get you into, and that is advanced engineering at, at that time. And and I said, okay, I'm doing advanced farming practices. Well, that's great. Okay, well, there's there's a couple problems with that. But but what what does that mean? Well. In, in a company, and I, I think I'm pretty, I know this is public information, the numbers might not be absolutely accurate, but generally with Deere, they spend about 4% of sales, not profits. Profits vary widely, sales are steadier. 4% of their sales goes to this thing called R&D, and research and development. And, uh, and it's divided into three different kind of big buckets. One bucket is current product improvement, continuous improvements, called, at least... And all the words have changed since I retired, but that's what we called it when I left. And and so that's where you are out fixing problems, responding to customer complaints, uh, fixing oil leaks, that sort of thing. It's pretty manpower intensive at Deer, but not very, not very expense oriented because the farmer has the equipment, the factory making the parts every day. You just got to go understand what's going on as a young engineer and go fix it. This is roughly akin to when a farmer drives down the road, looks out his pickup window and says, I got I got some weed pressure over there. I got a light area over there. Uh, Do I do something about it right now? Do I do something about next year? It's it's the continuous improvement. It's the stuff that if you don't pay attention to, you will be out of business because your competitors, your neighbors and all of that are paying attention to it. And then there's the new pro and, and that part of it is relatively small in terms of total engineering dollars. The big, the big elephant in the, in, in the R&D world is the new product programs. And we've all been through the emission steps, and we've seen you know, the big old after-treatment devices and all of that. But generally, uh, a new product program is a, is a power increase or a new feature, a new model number. And and that's where it becomes important for a company to do that, or you will be out of business if you don't if you don't match what your competitor is doing if you don't figure out where the farmer's going try to, and get there on time or maybe ahead of time or at least catch up quickly, you you will be out of business. You can do great day to day, but you gotta make an improvement, and so that's that's where the farmer has has enjoyed. Uh, all these, you know, comfort improvements and precision ag improvements, and and productivity, fuel efficiency, reliability. Products are so good now compared to what they were fifty years ago when I marched onto the scene and we had dry clutches and forty twenties. So uh, so things have gotten better, and they've gotten better one step at a time. Um, I don't mean to belabor the point, but but that's where most of the money goes. The advanced side is where. The corporation says, yeah, that's nice, we can make all these incremental improvements, but let's just keep an eye out for something big that might sneak up on us that we should maybe be looking at. Uh, and so the, the rule at Deere that we evolved was 10% of the R&D went to advanced. So, And, and I, I, I took the numbers, and, and in one of my reviews with one of my customers, my, my good cooperators, I took the dollars that that he that I'm pretty sure he produced in terms of yield, and said, "Okay, you should you should take four percent of those dollars and put them on put them on research, and then you should take ten percent of that four percent and let me have it." And that conversation really didn't go very far, <laughs> as you can imagine. <laughs> he says, "Bob, don't talk about dollars. People don't want to talk about dollars. They don't like to write uh, checks." But I'd also talked about it in terms of acres. He says, "No, acres make sense." And so I've, I've now made that generic enough that I say for every thousand acres that a grower has, he should take 4% of that or 40 acres and do what he thinks the next step improvement is for him to be competitive. Uh, the long-term yield uh, line we know is increasing at what, one and a half two 2% a year. If you don't stay with that line, eventually you're gonna be out of business. Uh, so these are those kinds of things. It, it's not where you go spend a bunch of money on equipment. You may, you may rent some equipment. You may have a neighbor that, that's teasing you with no-till or strip-till. Uh, you may have some new chemical treatments. You may try some different varieties. It's the sort of things that are relatively low risk. It's still an experiment. If it, if it comes up 10% short, you're, you're going to still be able to live tomorrow but you don't bet the farm on it and then take that, take that 40 acres of your thousand, take that 40 and it might be out off the road back where nobody can see it. And then that 40 acres, take 10% of that and do something a little crazy. Uh, 60 inch rows are a little crazy as an example. Um, Other, other things, the kind of things that came out of that in the product world were things like suspensions, front suspensions, uh, cab suspensions, IVT uh, came out of the advanced world. Uh, the emission stuff did not. The emission stuff was a requirement. People better figure out what they need to do and they go do it. So there's some things you gotta do and then the other things you do because you can or you want to or you want to do a better job. Uh, the precision ag stuff came out of kind of that advanced thinking thing. So, So a lot of stuff that today seems very normal a few years ago seemed pretty radical. The idea of, I I remember an executive saying, why would anybody not want to drive their tractor? They spend a lot of money for a nice cab. They enjoy driving it. It is absolutely stupid, guys. Why would you waste money on an engineering project that lets the tractor steer itself? That's just crazy. You know, and and that is a true story. And I won't name the guy, but but he's still running around. He's a friend of mine. So, so you, you have things that people that are really good at today's world look at and dismiss. My interest here is in being kind of the, the grain of sand that maybe creates the formation of a pearl by agitating a little bit to say, okay, let's think about this. But I also suggest to folks, don't take what I say as gospel truth. Take what I say as something to think about, play with, and then see if there's a piece of it that can work for you. And again, Monty, your, your, your conference and, and what you do is so powerful because it's so social media based, That that is really the enabler these days that lets people leverage what everybody's doing so much, so much heavier than we ever had in the past. You know, in the past it was Wallace's Farmer for, for, for products and, and, and the Wall Street Journal for markets that was it, you know,
1: so. Right. Yeah. The channels are increasing. That's for sure. So, but no, thank you for the compliment there, Bob. And, and it's a great perspective looking at 4% of, of your acres for, for doing, you know, research work and, and four tenths. Uh, I hope my dad doesn't listen to this podcast because I think we're the inverse on our farm. Uh, we're doing a lot of advanced engineering work for, you know, our team of, uh, dealers and, and customers across the country. So, um, we'll just make sure this one magically doesn't appear in his podcast feed. So uh, <laughs> I think I'll get yeah. cut way back. So, But, uh, yeah. no, that's, that's a great way to do it. And, and you and I participated. You produced some really nice uh, st- statistics uh, for all of the group that participated in the project last year. I don't think we were looking for, you know, uh, yield increases. We were kind of seeing how much we would uh, maintain yield by going to 60-inch rows. But I think one of the things that was fascinating was just trying something different and then observing. I think one of the worst things you can do is plant a new plot or try a new practice and not do anything at all and then go in with a combine and then be like, oh, well, it didn't yield as good. Okay, forget it. We learned so much by walking those fields. Um, For example, we learned uh, where... We had the residue managers were still down on the 30-inch rows because, you know, you don't like to get out and pin up 12 of those every other pass, right? So we, uh, we noticed that uh, when we did have those residue managers down and didn't plant a crop, we had a little more uh, weed effect in that cleaned row, but because the cover crops between, there was no, there was no weeds in those. So that was an interesting observation. You know, the other thing we learned, too, is the plant health, on the 60-inch was far, far superior to the 30-inch because the leaves were green all the way down to the base of the ground. I honestly, looking at it and doing some ear counts and stuff, I thought the 60s were going to perform better in, in, in some locations. So it was it was markedly different plant health. So I think you know there's, there's some magic happening out there uh, and if you don't make those observations and you just look at weight at the end of the day, you're going to miss out on a lot. So wouldn't you encourage everybody when they're doing something like that, Bob, to, to really not just look at one parameter, really take the time and, and look at everything that's going on out there in that field?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I want to I build on something you made about, about adjusting 12 row or, or row cleaners up. Uh, one of the things that has accrued to me, and, and I know you got growers out there that have lots of equipment, and lots of choices, um, one, of, one of the folks I worked with, uh, we spent some time together, talked about some ideas, and he, and he made a fundamental mistake in that he accepted what I said, this is a, this sounds like a good idea. And in fact, went a little further <laughs> and says, well, 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 let's try this. And so he went out and spent a whole bunch of money on a, on a 12-row planter, on every row unit, and we did a bunch of things and, and, and then he, so he went out and, and he wanted to do some replications and with big equipment, you chew up an awful lot of acres when you when you try to do replication. So sometimes that older planter that's sitting around, uh, maybe not have great street value, might be a really nice tool. Call it your R and D department, if mm-hmm. you will, and and maybe that's the one you put the extra tanks on for the extra uh, biology or whatever, mm-hmm. because. When you when you add a lot of that stuff to the big rig, you know, you impact the productivity of the big rig all year long. And Monty, I understand you're doing you you are an R&D lab. You know, you have a you have a business and your farm is the R&D lab for your business. So don't, don't apologize for doing things different than what others do. Uh,
1: and I think that's a good point, Bob, when you're talking about, oh, here's that eight-row planter. And some guys have smaller planters for doing replant in pockets yep. and those kind of things. But, yeah, as long as this planter in good condition and you can replicate and use, don't use your big planter for your standard practice and then your little planter side by side for comparison. Now we're comparing two different planters. You know, don't do right. that. But uh, that is a that is a really good opportunity because you know some of this older uh, machinery that's not as wide or as productive is just selling for next to nothing. It's more value to you to have it for a scenario like that. So good suggestions. Yeah.
2: And, and let me jump on that just a little bit more to, to pursue that. Uh, to your point, don't take an old beat up, junky, worn out planter and make that your R and D plant. On the other hand, you could take a six or maybe a mature 12-row planter and you could put two or three different kinds of of, uh, trash managers on it or row units or whatever. Uh, My my little four-row planter typically, I'm going to say this year on all of my rows across the planter, there were no two rows that had the same equipment. I don't. Now, and I've got lots of I got lots of replications, but I had different closing wheels. Uh, I had uh, half the rows were planting in the tire tracks, which people that are listening will take a gasp at that. But that was part of the experiment, and uh, so I yeah I, I I had variabilities of closing wheels and tire tracks, and those two got me across the four planner with no, none of them being the same. The other thing about that is a lot of these nice additions are priced per row. And they get pretty pricey, and so one of the ways you can manage your R and D costs is is not have to buy too many sets of them. Mm-hmm. So that that older planner promote it, don't don't just use it. Promote it to be in an R and D planner, and and go uh, go with it on that basis. And there was another thought, but I've lost it in that dialogue. It
1: will so come gonna, back, Bob. But I'm <laughs> I'm going to ask you something that may stimulate it here. Um, when we're talking about the why of what you did with the sunlight interception that's where this all started and like oh we can try 60s because that's just everybody has 30 inch equipment that's easy to do and you tried different row widths and pairings and all that kind of thing and and you've done a lot of examples spoken at no-till conference and other places where people can find that information but I wanted to visit with you a little bit on uh, further down the line on the thought process behind what can you do with the rest of that field out there with the rest of that sunlight interception where where do we go beyond just the the 60 inch row corn what are what are some of the active thoughts that you've had what are people doing that you found is successful what are things that you found that are just more utter failures which are just as good to know um where where do we go from here with those corridors that we can work with and profit from either companion cropping intercropping relay cropping um Whatever, whatever adjective we want to throw in there.
2: Go ahead. Yep. Uh, okay. Um, and, and now I'm, I'm actually going to come off in a uncharacteristically negative for me, but I got started on this in terms of corn and soybeans. Uh, a wonderful young man uh, named Clay Mitchell was doing 12 rows of corn and a 30-foot platform on soybeans, and I did some data. The edges were really good, so I concluded that narrower strips were better. And so it was down to, and that's part of how I got to, to a four-row planter uh, configuration and, and relatively narrow beans. And yet people don't like to talk about small equipment. So it get back, gets back to, okay, if this is a cash crop, I got to be really good at the cash crop. But then for the other stuff, maybe I don't have to be quite so good. Uh, a tweet that, came, that I got, I have a network of people that forward tweets to me. One that came through today was a guy who was planting beans and corn. Uh, the beans, soybeans are the filler in the 60-inch row. Right. Uh, and I think the thinking is he's going to harvest both together in the tank. And I would, I would caution people about getting too excited about that because I, I think it becomes a scrambled egg that you can't unscramble uh, once it hits the bin, I, I, yeah, there's I some,
1: there's some harvesting challenges just with rotor speed alone, uh, <laughs> and some sieve settings, but, uh, yeah, once they're together, that could be a, an interesting separation, but a color separator could do that. I mean, it's, but that uh, might exceed the R and D budget, you know?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, uh, the other thing is that, and you mentioned 60 inch rows. Once, once you make the leap that says I can find another, Good use for this space that helps me meet my short and long-term goals as as a landowner and a and a su- person interested in sustainability. I'm not so sure that wider than 60 is is all that bad of an idea. A 60-inch roll will about canopy, uh, depending on leaf geometry and the variety and all that. But when you really start talking about especially companion crops uh, and, and, and uh, one of my surprises in the 60 inch row thing was how excited a subgroup of a subgroup got. And that's the folks that have cover crops that want to graze them. They become they are the they are the easiest sell on 60 inch rows because their their cover crop becomes really good grazing opportunity in the fall. And so that's, you know, that's almost direct to their bottom line. And, and, but a lot of folks have parted company with livestock a long time ago and don't plan to go back. And I would be in that camp squarely. So, uh, so I like the really little livestock that's underground as opposed to the big heavy stuff. But the people that are doing that, especially on, on more marginal ground, I think, uh, I think are going to find that it's really useful and, and really successful. Uh, and so then so then, when you start talking about marginal ground, um, if there is a way to grow that and and manage the the water and soil uh, flow off of that, and I used I've I've now started I used to just talk about soil health. I now talk more about water and soil health. The guy owns the land, and he's going to hand it off or sell it to his kids or or someone else. And he hopes that, that it's in better shape than when he got it. But the water, he's just borrowing. It's going downstream quickly. And the folks that he's handing it to care about what he gives them. And it I think it's in the grower's interest that he continue to evolve his practices that let him do a better job of managing the rainfall <clears throat> and, therefore, the runoff of, off of his land. And that's where some of the strips yeah, you know, Iowa State University has a program called STRIPS. That's their—I think that's an acronym, actually—but uh, but they talk about that uh, a lot. And so I think there's—I think there's some environmental impact that Im- that impacts the neighbors, and I think there's some soil health impact that opens some doors for some rotational things. Uh, even if it's not an every year flip, it maybe you run several years and and then rotate. Uh, I have a dream that the USDA and then RCS will will one day begin to see the value of some of these different things between the corn rows. I think at this point it's a pretty limited understanding uh, and it's it's just a filler uh, I believe. And my, Monty you talk to a lot more people than I do you're a lot more knowledgeable on that stuff than I am but but I I can envision that if you could take take a let's take a farmstead that's either uh, challenging from a, a soil health or it's been abused or the topography's not very good and have some fairly wide strips of corn, meaning 10, maybe 15 feet, and an equivalent spacing of, uh, of a sustainable grow-the-soil health kind of a crop. Could be a cover crop, could be a hay crop, might just be CRP. Uh, would it be feasible to have a five-year CRP program and then you flip it and, and go again. And again, this is this is Bob think, you know, so it's not like uh, there's any reality here, but it, it's just a mind opener that says, well, what could I do? Uh, another one that comes to mind, and, and I've got some, some good friends up in Wisconsin, and you can't drive through Wisconsin without being aware of the cows. Uh, the idea of creating a, a diet or a, a menu for the, for the cows that can become forage that has a blend of the silage crop and the legumes and all of that. Uh, again, I'm no animal nutritionist, but in uh, a lot of the forage folks, uh, they're harvesting everything and, and, and creating silage bales and all that. So I think, I think there's just an enormous number of possibilities out there, of which I don't have the wherewithal, the knowledge to deal anything with but if I've made a contribution here, it's to be the enabler of some of these things by, by squeezing more corn out of the ground that the corn is in and, and enabling better individual plant yield by the corn and giving back some of that ground for other purposes.
1: You, uh, you hit uh, exactly on a point there. It made me think a lot about why we do the Aggie conference. Okay. And, um, it's not it's not a sales pitch for it it's just a helping understand where we were at I saw you know we, we were enabling the conversations to happen you know the work that you were doing with the solar corridors and, and Jason Mock and many others across the country are really looking at this Bob Kremer was the lead of it with the uh, Crop Science Society of America that That's interesting. Then there's a whole group with, you know, no-till and cover crops, and then there's another group with grazing animals and, and soil health, you know, and then there's other groups with robotics and automation, sensing technologies, machine learning, artificial intelligence, all of these various silos that are, you know, in the ag and ag tech, ag production, ag tech arena. And that was the basis of Ag Emerge. How can we bring together the best thought leaders in the soil health practices, along with ag tech uh, entrepreneurs and technologies, and how are they all going to work together in the future? And I really, because so much is happening so fast, you just, it's very hard to, to stay on top of it. And it's really designed to be a collaborative effort where we throw people in the room you know, that are, you know, basically Father No-Till is going to be our headline speaker this year. Been doing it for 40 years of systems research and such and, um, you know, combined with people are talking about human health you know, combined with people who are talking about how the brain makes decisions and, and how the brain is wired to make decisions based on what we've always done, right? So it's not necessarily everybody's fault we always do what we always did. That's just how we're made, right? That's a physiological thing, you know, and, and combined <laughs> yeah. with, you know, other people who are going to be there looking at uh, the future of agriculture. And I, I think he nailed it right there when you talk about, hey, this is what I see as a contribution I can throw out there. Uh, to enable that. So that that was the basis of why we got started. But to talk a little bit about your strips there, you alluded to the 15-foot gap and you you talked about how 60-inch, that's just still that narrow corn, right? We need to get <laughs> look at 90, <laughs> 120. Yeah, why not? Well, 15-foot, 20-foot. You know, the, the bad part is is deer isn't going to sell many disc openers now if we go to 20-foot 20, 20 rows, Bob. So um, your retirement could be affected there. But, uh, um, you know, Talk about, and you're in advanced engineering, and you can think through this. You can't reveal any proprietary information, I'm sure. But you know, I really see an, uh, us, we've hit um, machine zenith, if you will, or, or we're really close to it. Because even though those 48-row dB bars are just awesome and really cool, that's a lot of weight and a lot of expense going through. And the reason we've gotten to those big machines is because we don't have the people to drive them. That's the limiting factor. Well, all of a sudden, if we don't have people driving machines, why do they have to be so big? You know, when we get to swarm-type uh, automated machines, these type of principles with 60-inch, 90-inch corridors, and you got a, a robot, as an R-O-W-B-O-T, going down the row, doing whatever weeding, seeding, Tending, fertilizing, whatever it is, and you send a hundred of them out in the field, and if one dies, you're not too worried about it. You got 99 more to to keep doing the job. How do you see that emerging technology on that side in robotics, automation, machine learning, artificial intelligence, able to enable these soil health practices when you get into multiple species of crops, multiple crops growing vertically, in, you know, vertically um, stacking enterprises on top of each other automated livestock moving, fenceless solutions, all these things coming together and, and with a soil health focus, have you, have you spent, you and I haven't talked about this directly, but have you thought about that, Bob? And what the, how exciting the future can be when you put, uh, they use advanced technologies to practice for how they can directly impact soil health.
2: Um, yeah, I think about it a lot. Uh, I'm, I, 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 you, you threw a lot out there, Monty, and, and, and I'm sure the listeners' minds are, are reeling already. Uh, disclaimer, number one, I've been out of here for 10 years, so what's going on in their advanced group is hard to say. Uh, but, I, but I've been a proponent of small robotic equipment way before it was fashionable. Um, I'm amazed it hasn't happened faster in the ag world. Uh, you were talking about forty-eight row planters and 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 big and heavy. Uh, the the one thing that hasn't changed, um, in in a lot of years, is the window of opportunity for planting and harvesting, especially planting. It has and changed
1: this, though. It's gotten less. It really has. Yeah. I mean, our 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 operating days has significantly decreased just in my lifetime.
2: But yeah. But and, anyway, and yeah. So, Go ahead. And, and, and so that drives a lot of big equipment. And, and, that, and, and my statement as an old tractor engineer, this pains me, but the most important piece of equipment on the farm is the plant. And it needs to do a good job. It needs to be reliable. It needs to be productive. That said, okay, get out there. Get across your acres. And, 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 and at my heart, I've come to believe that I'd really like to see the world be a no-till world. That's also blasphemy to some of my uh, folks that write me a check every month. But, but I do believe that that's that nature nature can be pretty good at that. Uh, and we've fooled it for a long time, but let's let's go back and work hands in hands with nature. All of that is a, is a preface to timeliness and productivity are so important on the primary cash crop. On the other hand, things like when do I seed the cover crop? Can be everywhere from two months before last year's harvest up to two months after this year's planting. And there's a lot of other treatments and amendments that do not have the time pressure that the primary crop does. And and further, because their additions, I think the I think if there's entrepreneurs out there listening to this, there may be more opportunity for farmers to embrace some automated and swarm type equipment that are doing auxiliary operations in a, in in addition to the core stuff. Ooh, I mean that's an interesting the, thought. These days there's people out running around with 8000 series tractors moving waterways. I love it. You know, they're putting hours on their 8000 series tractors.
1: It's back well, to helping your retirement fund, see. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a that's an excellent point, Bob. We've got the we've got the things that we're doing well today is taken care of. The opportunity for an entrepreneur to to innovate the industry is on the these fringe practices that aren't mainstream to help them make them more mainstream.
2: Exactly. Yep. Uh, and a robot robot is a living example of that in my mind. Uh, the The environmentalists would just as soon see the nitrogen go on after. Uh, after it's planted, they would prefer that we, that you don't have it sitting out there and, and all that. But the timeliness thing just trumps everything. And I and think so a farmer
1: the, would like to have that too, you know, this, this spring in most areas where we had Noah's second flood. Uh, you know, they're sitting there wondering, what do I have left? Uh, you know, the nice right. part about us is we looked at the tank and we knew how much we had left. We, it wasn't in the field yet. so. Uh, but, yeah, you exactly. know, enabling that to happen, it takes longer, but a technology enable that to happen is, yeah, environmentally friendly and farmer friendly.
2: Yeah, that, that's correct. And, and on the, com- the companion crop thing, if it becomes a high-value crop, and, and let's face it, corn is not grapevines and it's not lettuce heads. It's a commodity crop, and all of that. Um, but the companion crops these days are less so than corn. But but to the extent that they can displace uh, nutrient expenditures and that sort of thing, it's it's worth it's worth a good look. Uh, and so I you know I think there's some some entrepreneurial solution out there that says let's let's be more discretionary. With our with with our add I'll say additives not just nitrogen but all the additives and and the neat thing about them is it lets you if you can respond to the season as it's happening rather than placing all your bets the fall before on what it's going to be like next year uh, so so you can you can adapt as you go and there were a lot of people changing from corn to beans this year and and some were changing to you know prevent plant and all that sort of stuff to prevent plant fields are a huge opportunity, but that's an anomaly. And to think that I got to go out with my, my big equipment and go out and deal with and plant and seed and all that stuff all at once in a great big hurry. That's okay. But you wouldn't really need to do that. You could dispatch small equipment to go out and, and, and deal with that. My belief is that and at 60 inch rows, uh, There are vineyard tractors all over the world that are 80 and 90 horsepower tractors that are perfectly uh, capable and not necessarily cheap tractors that will go down between 60 inch rows, at least early in the season, late in the season, maybe you're breaking some leaves. But so, so my belief, Monty, is it doesn't take a new machine form. It costs millions to create new machine forms. Been in that game. I did that, and it and it, and it's painful and risky for a big company to create a new machine form. Self-propelled uh, sprayers are a good example of that. And a wonderful young man named Hagee did that, and turned into an old man doing it. You know, and and it's working. Uh, but but those, those a few of those only come along in our lifetime. But with the technology that you've described, uh, and and the automation and all of that, and kind of a sidebar, but I'm amazed at how aggressive the automotive far- folks are on automation. My cars now nudge me down the road. They, they, they don't like me to get too close. They back me off, and they do all kinds of weird things that I can't imagine uh, a company doing, giving that much control and taking it away from the driver in such a hazardous environment. A farm field is such a benign environment for automation compared to a highway and yet there's probably more fully automated things being talked about on the automotive world than there is in agriculture. And that, for me, Great is point. just a mind blower. And I think some of it is the size of the market uh, and the attention of the public versus this mundane thing of, you know, growing corn. But yeah. uh, but I, I think when people get hungry and labor supply is, you know, going to be a challenge and all of that, uh you mentioned all the right things. It's it's all happening so fast, and social media will become the the river from which this information is dumped into and pulled out of by the darnest people in the darnest locations.
1: Well, and honestly, it's a response to competition too in the automotive industry. When you've got startups like Tesla, and you've got big tech companies such as Google and Apple looking yeah. into automation, they the automotive manufacturers are getting into it to protect their turf you know right now my truck does all that same thing half ton pickup truck and it it's close to driving itself and I'm going to be so thankful someday when it does because I guarantee (laughs) it's a better driver than I am because I'm not you know eating a sandwich and texting and talking and everything all at once but uh or at least I see other people doing that I guess I shouldn't admit that on the public airwaves here but uh it's uh I think there is a lack of competition out there, and I do think that's uh, ripe for a startup to to be involved in in those things. And we've met with several startup ag tech companies that are looking at that new platform, like you're talking about, uh, because oftentimes it is cheaper for an OEM to purchase the proven platform than to develop it themselves, because then the well, other that. ten that didn't that failed, you know, they yeah. would have had to invest in those other ten, the equivalent amount to find the one that worked. Okay. So.
2: Yeah, I'm sure the name is familiar to you, but I'm going to put a plug in for a book, an old, old book now for me, but Innovator's Dilemma by a guy named Clayton Christensen. I don't know whether you've had him in your Ag Emerge. Okay, He would would be a good person on there. Uh, For your readers uh, or your listeners, it's a good read. Um, I can tell by your language you're a student of Simon Sinek, but uh, Clayton Christensen does a really good job, and I lived... I live that world in, in his book, uh, in, in, my, uh, in my career, and he, and he explains very clearly why great companies often fail uh, because of the genetics of, uh, of what they do and how they do it and all that. And, and in one of my presentations, I took his book and scratched out the word, uh, How Disruptive Innovation Causes Great Companies to Fail. I scratched out the word company and replaced it with farms. And, and we can all drive up and down the road and see really nice blue silos with auger systems coming out of them okay. that were, that they were the picture postcard when you and I were kids. And yet, if they didn't adapt and evolve, uh, they're rural residences at this point. Mm-hmm. So, right. uh, and it's not get big or get out. It's get better or get out.
1: Correct. Yeah, it's not about size. It's about you know, process and procedures. So no doubt. Well, Bob, what have you got coming up here? This, that you're looking forward to this fall, a winter Um, ideas that, that you've, that you've got in the back of your head right now.
2: Uh, Well, last year was interesting because I, I, my plot field suffered a major wind damage event Uh, this year. I've got some, some that's looking pretty good. Uh, Again, I can't talk about it much, but I think it's going to be interesting um, and some that's got real weather challenges. So it's kind of like the real world. Um, I, my, my little tractor and planter are going to be at the farm progress show uh, next week in Decatur. So if you get out that way, uh, okay. stop by Monty at the uh, Alliance tire booth. Uh, I did something really crazy this year. I planted, I, 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 I struggled with the stability and rotability of my tractor at 60 inch tread, and the clumsiness of it with duels, and decided I wanted my wheel tread at 90 inches, and I was going to plant corn into the tire treads, and that's a really bad idea, and yet I think it's going to turn out to be at least a neutral, at least a neutral idea, and that's based on, based on a very limited amount of data. I'll have a whole lot more data in a couple months, so, so, uh, and one of the, one of the curses i suffer under as i never do the same thing twice so i don't know what's going to happen next year we'll have to see what the, and somebody will probably walk up to me at one of these conferences and shows and say hey have you ever thought about it? And I say, no and then i'll go do it you know but i'll do it on a i'll do it on a small scale and and it may be a dramatic failure but it'll be fun okay. well you are
1: yeah i gotta give you this you're not afraid to try anything uh that i should have asked or brought up while we were together here today that you want to have an opportunity to share
2: i should have expanded on the observation thing uh uh, one of the things i've done in the past i did it this year but i I aborted early was putting a time-lapse camera out in the field the day i plant and watch the plants come up i'm a huge fan of emergence and the fun and i would suggest that if people don't want to do that they ought to at least go out and flag a few plants, a few feet, a little a little section, and then keep going back to that same section all year long as they scout uh, because you, you get to know the plants, you get to see who's doing well and who isn't, and that really triggers a lot of really good thoughts about nutrient placement and seed-to-soil contact and, and what's going on in the environment and all that. So your, your thing about getting out there, get out of the pickup, Get out there and, and look all the, all the time is good. And if you don't want to do that, go get yourself a drone because then that tells you where to look. And that's yep. a whole other conversation well, that we'll have on you, another. Yeah, day. you know something about that too, Bob. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting to me because uh, I feel like uh, like the Soil Health Groupie. Like I'm busy watching you all uh, create these videos and, and doing these little you know mini documentaries as you walk through the fields and and uh so observation I think especially when they're when they're willing to post their observations and talk about it um I mean we we get excited when Monty's walking through the field and and it's funny because when he's in the field sometimes he's got his dad with him he's got Ryan with him you know they're walking through and they're like Hey, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of getting all excited about something, and and so I I love to see the um, the interaction that everybody has with it. You know, uh, the the conversation that goes on from those observations, and I think there's so much learning, even if it's not an, a specific example that you're doing. There's something in there that each person can learn from it. So from an observer standpoint. Um, It's an it's an awesome classroom, and but I also think it's it's fantastic for the guys for everyone who's in doing it that they are getting these little nuggets uh, of information. That's really fun
1: and just don't fail large, right? And that was a key key part that Bob made. Fail failure is fine. And what what's the quote from Thomas Edison that he probably made it up? You know, but hey, I. I uh, I didn't fail a thousand times making a light bulb. I just learned a thousand ways you couldn't do it. So it's a right, sim- right, similar right. concept, right, Bob? Keep trying.
2: Exactly. Never give up. Fail fast, fail often, learn from it, and go on.
0: Yeah. There you go. Yep, that's great.
1: Well, thank you for the encouragement, Bob. Thank you for sharing uh, some of your thoughts. And, yes, we'll have to have an imagery uh, update someday, too. Uh, If we can, maybe when the snow is flying outside and uh, you don't want to be anywhere else. How's that sound?
2: I think we both have plots to go look at. Thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been fun. All right. Take care, Bob. Bob.
0: We appreciate it. What a great visit with Bob and a great way to look at the research, development, and especially observation, implementing advanced farming practices that might work best on your own operation. You can find out more about the work Bob is doing by visiting his website at cedarvalleyinnovation.com. And don't forget, the 2020 Aggie Merge event is quickly approaching. We have got an exciting lineup for you this year ag emerge is more than a conference it offers a unique opportunity to hear multiple perspectives and learn how thought leaders entrepreneurs and forward-thinking growers like you are tackling some of the most challenging problems in agriculture thanks for joining us today we'll see you back here soon